I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. We've been um, making our way through this amazing book of Exodus, and we come to this uh, chapter 21, and we've spent the last three weeks going through just the first 11 verses, which are uh, somewhat tricky to our modern minds as they discuss slavery. And so I just want to remind you that for some context to what we've already spoken about, you can uh, look at what we've um, put out there in messages the past couple of weeks. And these um, next verses aren't necessarily all that much easier for us to digest, but it is necessary for us to look into God's Word, the expectancy that He is going to teach us and instruct us as we make our way through this. This is going to be detailing for us laws that God gave to Israel as a nation for how they were to live and conduct themselves as a nation with a a government that could enact the penalties for crimes committed. And so we need to keep that in mind as we read through this passage. We're reading Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 32. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Not necessarily the lightest reading that you've probably had during the week, but important nonetheless. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, God Almighty, ruler of heaven and earth. 
And Lord, we submit to your absolute authority. We recognize that you rule justly and righteously. And Father, as we've read through this, certainly questions have come to our minds. We wonder what is meant and how it could be applied. And I pray, Father, that you would give us that kind of wisdom this morning. You give us ears to hear, hearts to discern, and hearts that are willing to listen to you. Father, help me now. I know you. I need it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a bit of a preface before we unpack these verses. I need to just make something plain, and I'm sure you already understand it, but one of the foundational premises to the whole of Scripture is this, that man is sinful. If you take that away as um, a fundamental premise of the whole of the Bible, then the Bible kind of falls apart. It doesn't really make all that much sense. It doesn't cohere. It is understood by the Bible, and I think it ought to be just kind of intuitively understood by us that we are sinners. And because of that, there are consequences. We know that in everyday life, that when we do something wrong, usually it comes with consequences. Sometimes we get away with it, but there may be the consequence of a, a conscience that is guilty or a person that is hurt. The story of the Bible, or I should say the, the basic message of the Bible, is that God, in his mercy, has come to save sinners. Our sin not only has natural ramifications to it, but it, in a sense, has supernatural ramifications to it because there is a God who is judge over every human soul and will, will one day call to account every person who has lived for how they have lived. And we'll stand before him, and on our own merit, we will be found guilty. The judge, God Almighty, We'll see through any charade that we've been able to mask or pull over on other people, and he will be able to declare us guilty of violating his law. And there's no ransom that we can pay. The, the fine is death. It is not just physical death, but it is eternal death, the separation from God in hell. That's the consequence. And you can't pay God off, you can't make it right on your own, and that's the message of the Bible, is that we can't do it, but God has done it for us. Through Jesus Christ, God's Son, He has given us a way of escape from His wrath. He has given Jesus to be the substitute, the one who paid the ransom in our place. He paid the fine on the cross. He paid with His own life, life for life. And so those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven. They're let go of the guilt that they really should own, but no longer need to because Christ has stayed in our, stood in our place. He rose again on the third day to prove that his sacrifice was accepted, and he sits in heaven now waiting to come back for those who are his own. That's the message of the Bible. This text is dealing with that in a sense, but it narrows in on something else for a few moments that we need to consider. While we understand there's a remedy for sin through Christ, in the meantime, 
there is sin on earth. And men, women, children commit acts of sin all the time. And if we were left to ourselves without any kind of restraint, there soon wouldn't be any men or women to sin against because we would just kill each other. And so God has put restraint in this world to govern the sin, sinful inclinations of man so it isn't just a, a free-for-all where we get to do whatever we want, which would end in really the eradication of the human race, either through God's judgment or our own judgment on ourselves. And so in the meantime, there is this restraint that God has put into the world. Much of this restraint happens through governments, through human government. We need a text like this because it establishes for Israel, that ancient nation, how they were to be governed, how they were to restrain and deter sin. And it, it kind of raises some questions for us that we need to consider and it, it really shows the reason why we need texts like this and time to think about this, because we need to think on what basis do we as humans judge what is right and what is wrong? Where do you go to look for what is the standard for what is sin or not sin, what is crime or not crime? The culture that we live in will look somewhere to determine their ethics. Where do they look? Well. As of now, it is by and large looking anywhere except for the Bible. We look within ourselves to determine what is right or what is wrong. We look anywhere but the revelation that God has given. Many think, as a matter of fact, the Bible should be off limits in the discussion about morality. And we should be able, just on the basis of our own human reasoning, to determine what is right and wrong, what is crime and what is punishment. But we know that we, as followers of Christ, look somewhere else to determine our ethics. Not within, we look without, we look to the revelation of God in his Bible. And we use it as a standard by which we live. Because our minds are corrupted by the fall, because while the process of redemption has begun, and the salvation of our souls, we still have sinful inclinations, we still need to look outside of ourselves, the word of God, to determine what's right and wrong. Not only that, we also have to determine what are the consequences when wrong has been done. There's the practical matter of just needing to know what should happen when something wrong has been done. That's a complex subject, isn't it? How do you determine when some crime has been committed, what is a, a fair punishment for any kind of crime that's happened? In one sense, we might think, well, you know, I'm not in a position to adjudicate that. I don't get to have the responsibility to determine what the punishment is for a crime. I'd love to, but I don't get that responsibility. And just one of the challenges of looking through a, a text like this, we have to understand that church is not Israel in the sense that we are not a nation that possesses a government by which we get to execute punishments on people for crimes committed. We don't get that authority given to us by Christ. Our, our king, our president, is in heaven on his throne waiting for the signal from his father to come back and to enact his judgment. And so we're challenged by 
that reality, that we don't get to bear the sword and enact the kind of punishments that are here. We don't get authorization to enact the death penalty or fines. However, there is the expectation that even within the church, when disputes arise, brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister, there ought to be the ability within the church to settle those disputes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 is really an interesting passage. It says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. That's interesting, isn't it? We'll judge the world, so Paul says. Should be getting ready for that. In the meantime, there will be conflict within the church, and there ought to be wisdom enough within the church to adjudicate those disputes. Another reason why approaching this passage can be kind of tricky, it's not just because the church is not Israel in the sense that we don't have a government like Israel did, but also because Jesus speaks directly to this passage. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, Jesus quotes from this passage directly. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What we might think is Jesus totally undoing this passage, and so should we even pay attention to a passage like this? Because Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But it's important for us to understand that when Jesus is saying that, he is really speaking to people who have taken this standard, which was meant to be a judicial standard for judges and kings and priests to be able to equitably judge their nation, and people have taken that and made it into like a, a personal vendetta mantra. You hurt me, I hurt you. You bruise me, I bruise you. And Jesus is speaking personally to people and saying, no, don't take personal vengeance against people. That's not what the eye for an eye is about. As a matter of fact, on a personal level, you can take insult. You can even take assault and turn it into a moment of mercy and forgiveness. So he doesn't undermine, Jesus does not undermine the Old Testament in any way. In fact, he says that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And so we understand that when Jesus speaks about this, he's speaking about personal vengeance and an exacting disposition. And so it is worth for us to continue in this so that we see the wisdom, justice, and protection of God. And it's really calling us to live wisely in a problematic world and to develop a, a biblical view of the world. And also we do heed Jesus' words that we pursue what is right, but not at the expense of personal mercy. These laws that we've read and we'll look at are laws that deal with crimes that 
deserve capital punishment or inflict bodily harm. There are four laws. The first four laws are ones that have the explicit consequence of shall be put to death. And the laws include certain scenarios that would provide guidance to those who were acting as judges or anyone making decisions about the crime and punishment. They would kind of give you some case studies by which to then bring to the specific details of any case that comes to them. It's an interesting thing to note that these laws really address the whole of society. No one is really left out here. It addresses men and women, parents and children, mothers and unborn, slaves and masters. These first four laws, we'll, we'll take some time to look at them because they really set up the standards for the, the next five laws. And really the first one kind of sets our, our frame of reference. So let's take a few moments and unpack what's going on in this very first law in verses 12 through 14. This is the scenario, it says, where one man strikes another man and he dies. And the consequence of that is that he shall be put to death. Doesn't elaborate on much background there, but it institutes the expectation of the penalty for it is capital punishment, death penalty. And I know that's a controversial topic, and so we need to take a little bit of time and think about this for a few moments. One of the key biblical texts on the death penalty is Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. This is after the flood has receded from the earth. It's just Noah um, and his family that are left after that devastating flood, judgment on the world. And God is basically rebuilding humanity. And he says to Noah, in Genesis 9, verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Before the law was given, and as humanity is being rebuilt, God is showing that he values human life so much because human life has intrinsic to it the image of God, that if anyone takes that image of God out, it must be shown what a horrific crime that is by the severest of penalties. The death penalty in that instance, in Genesis 9, reveals really the value of human life by the severity of the punishment for those who devalue it through bloodshed. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 33, another text that has us understand why this is such a, a severe punishment for the crime of intentional murder. It says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. From God's point of view, when there is this kind of a murder 
an intentional, cold-blooded, hate-filled murder. That blood pollutes the land, and there's really no dealing with it except through capital punishment against the one who committed it. Even in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, Paul is speaking about human government, and he says, government, he's referring to it in a personal way, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Did you catch that? Human government is a tool by which God enacts his wrath on the one who has committed a crime deserving capital punishment. And when Paul says that he does not bear the sword in vain, that is an unveiled reference to the death penalty. That's what everyone would understand it who heard him say that. This is an obvious deterrent to continued crime when enacted properly. And it is an appropriate expression of the horror of the crime committed. Now, of course, there are so many things that come to mind in response to that, aren't there? And one of the first ones is, well, of course, this, as Paul writes that statement, he says he's God's servant for your good. How many people in the history of the world have experienced a government as a servant for people's good? As a matter of fact, Paul, who wrote Romans 13, was executed by the state, and unjustly so for a crime that does not deserve capital punishment, for preaching the gospel, for preaching life, he was killed. And so certainly there are cautions that need to be held in place. Modern Israel, as they were being formed into a nation once again, having come out of that horror of the Holocaust, had written into their governance that there would be no death penalty. They did not want that kind of power to be in the hands of the state, having seen what kind of horrors can come from that power being in the hands of the state, and we could understand why that would be so. But the Bible is expecting, when it holds, holds out the death penalty as adequate punishment for a crime committed, that there is great care taken when it is enacted. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 and 7, which says this, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And then it says this remarkable thing. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The way the system was set up was that, first of all, there couldn't be a death penalty if there's only one witness. That wasn't allowed. There's uh, the evidence was, was too shoddy. But if you have two or three witnesses that are testifying, they are effectively testifying with such certainty that that person is guilty of cold-blooded murder 
that they will have to take up the responsibility of being the first one to throw a stone. And you, if you put yourself in that position, would either have to be so evil to lie about the person when you know they aren't guilty, that you would go and cold blood throw a stone against an innocent person, or you would be so convinced of their guilt that you can say with certainty, yes, that person is guilty, and cast the first stone. It was a system of protection, and as a matter of fact, it goes on that if that person was found out to be a liar, then they would be guilty of the crime that they accused the innocent person of, and held liable for that crime. Our innocent until proven guilty criminal system is a good system in principle, but perhaps there's no more terrifying idea in the justice system than punishing someone who is innocent, because there's no taking it back. One author writes about a man named Led Edward Chapman, who was given the death penalty for two 1992 murders and was released from death row after 15 years of awaiting execution. In 2007, he was given a new trial, and in April 2008, prosecutors dropped all charges against him. He was granted a new trial on the basis of evidence that had been withheld, key documents that had been lost or destroyed, and false testimony by one of the investigators. I think our hearts skip a beat when we think about scenarios like that. What a horror to think of an innocent person being punished. And so, as we understand what the Bible is saying here, yes, capital punishment is a real thing and to be enacted, but to be enacted carefully and under the guidance of what the Bible says, not at all flippantly. And this text goes on to show that there are different scenarios that come to pass here, because in verse 13, it gives this condition in which if that man was not lying in wait for the one whom he kills, but it says, but God let him fall into his hand. In other words, it was out of human control, really. Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. This is what we would call manslaughter. It's not premeditated. It's not by design. This man is not his enemy. It could be an accident that happens. And in that case, God designated cities which that person could flee to so he would be protected from anybody who was enraged to bring about vengeance against him. And he was protected. He was protected really by God's system that God put into place. The condition that is being talked about in relation to capital punishment is really the condition of intentional murder. It says in verse 14, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, he shall take him from my altar that he may die. This is willful, planned, full of hatred, anger, cold-blooded murder. He can't even go to an altar of God and find protection there. And then comes the consequence. There are other crimes that are described here that entail capital punishment as well. Verse 15 says, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Again, these are eye-opening. It does not say here that the mother or father dies. If the parent died, then I presume verse 12 would kick in. 
So in this case, it's likely that there was an attack that could have led to death and likely had malicious intent but did not result in a death. It's from a child to a parent, most likely a grown child, obviously strong enough to inflict some sort of serious wound and perhaps even have the capacity to bring about death. And the point here is that the family, led by the father and mother, is so essential to society and for children old and strong enough to strike their parents, they are liable for undermining the authority God has placed in their life. And it's essentially treason. The capital punishment is the penalty. Obviously a huge deterrent to anyone doing that or thinking about doing that. And then there's man-stealing or kidnapping. And the situation is likely somebody who goes and uh, grabs somebody to sell in the slave market. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, you know how they hated him, and they thought, rather than murder him, let's make some money off of him and sell him to these slave traders. It's effectively saying, we devalue your life so much that we'd be willing to sell or to kill you, but we'd rather make money off of you, and so we'll do that instead. It's the same heart attitude as murder, and so coming with it is capital punishment. And again, as we've seen in the past text, that if this was put into practice, pretty much the whole of the American slave system would have been undermined by that law alone. Another one is cursing father or mother. Verse 17. It's literally to treat lightly. It's the opposite of what the fifth commandment says, to honor your father and mother. One author says this about the situation. He says, quote, This is more serious than a hasty word spoken in anger. Curse points to speech about parents which is disparaging and insulting, repudiating their authority and treating it and them with utter contempt. This was an assault on the social cohesion of the covenant community and a major threat to its well-being as it sought to live out its God-appointed role. This is the similar situation to Matthew 15 when Jesus talks to the Pharisees about placing the traditions, the commandments of God with the traditions of men as they basically curse their parents by saying, we're not going to take care of you. Or it's the prodigal son who says to his father, I wish you were dead and I could have your inheritance. Consequence of that is death. It's evil. It's wrong. The next laws are including violent crimes that aren't necessarily requiring the death penalty or violent instances. The first one in verse 18 is when men are quarreling. They're in a heated argument. That never happens among guys, does it? And the Words are being flung, and the temperature in the room is escalating, and one of the guys is so provoked that he begins to think that this is going to take more than words. It's not premeditated. He doesn't have a weapon on him. He just uses his fist, or he grabs a stone nearby and hits the other guy. It doesn't result in death, but it results in some level of injury, so that the man is taken to his bed. He's He's got to take time to recover, but 
It's not an injury that is going to last because eventually he's able to get up, go outdoors with a crutch. It says that then the one who did that is not going to be guilty of murder effectively. That's what it means by he shall be clear. But only he shall pay for the loss of his time, in verse 19, and shall have him thoroughly healed. It sounds like a very fair, judicious response, doesn't it? The man has lost time working, and so the culprit needs to help him with that, and then also make sure that he has all the medical care that he needs to make the recovery as far as he can. The next one is one that kind of hits our ears a bit odd. In verse 20, it says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. We hear that, but we immediately again have these images of, of uh, what our nation has experienced in this horrible history of slavery. A man striking his slave, it almost is like it gives authorization to beating as long as the slave doesn't die, and beat him to an inch of his life. I don't think that's what it's referring to here. We've already seen that biblical law undermines pretty much the whole of the American slave system. And for us, what comes to mind when we hear this is that, that image of, um, you may have seen it before, of a man that was known as Whipped Peter. as the man who escaped slavery in the South and he found a, uh, a union station where he was evaluated by a physician and a picture was taken of him, this very famous picture of his naked back crisscrossed with stripes from being beaten again and again and again, so much so that it looks like a checkerboard. It's a horrible image, and it's one that stays in your mind, and that's kind of what we think of here as the Bible almost legitimizing, but I think this is the kind of thing that the Bible is actually pointing completely away from. This is not allowed at all. As a matter of fact, in a couple of verses, we'll see that if a master injures his slave in some irreparable manner, that slave is to be set free instantly. We have to remember that the slavery here could either come from some sort of theft, some crime that was committed for which he is now paying through this six years of servitude, or about a culpable kind of debt that he needs to pay back. And he's gotten into this situation to basically pay his debt to society or his debt to whoever he owes it to. And you can Im imagine the kind of situation where somebody has has either gotten into debt and he has to pay it back through this servitude or has committed some sort of uh, theft and he has to pay back that theft through the servitude and he's not very incentivized to work very diligently in his work. Proverbs 29 verse 19 says, By mere words a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands he will not respond. Even Jesus knows about this scenario where somebody does not do what is required of them. Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, he tells a parable. He says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will received a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The restraints on this, of course, are there's not to be any irreparable injury to the slave. And in the case where a master does beat his slave to death. It says, he shall be avenged. 
He's treated in the same category as the murderer. Avenge in the Old Testament means a displeasure that God has towards some act that was committed, and the recompense for that is going to be the death of the one who commits it. And so the master, if he kills his slave, is guilty of murder. In the condition where the slave survives, and it's ambiguous a day or two, it's not clear if he dies afterwards, if he goes on living, he's not to be avenged, it says, for the slave is his money. This is a similar situation to the other situations. The slave likely is to be set free. Basically, the master is penalized because he had invested in having this slave. When it says the slave is his money, the way it's translated makes it sound like it's his property. Literally, it's the slave is his silver. It's not saying that the slave is equivalent to money like he's some piece of chattel or property. It just means that this master has invested his money into the servitude of that slave, and now he has to let him go free, basically, and the master loses out. That's the point that it's making. Next one is equally difficult. It talks about men striving together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. There's no harm. The background situation to this is ambiguous. What's going on here? We don't know why she's there, what she's trying to accomplish. Maybe it's one of those fiery, hot-headed husbands and she's trying to get him out of trouble again. He intervenes and gets struck. She's pregnant. The children come out. What's to happen? Well, it says if there's no harm, harm to who? Well, I think it's, it's ambiguous for a purpose. It's harm to either the children or the, the mother. But if there's no harm to either the children or the mother, then the one who hit her will be fined as the husband, as the husband desires and determined by the judges. This is a husband saying, you can't hit my wife. You can't do that. So he poses this fine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is not suggesting that the one who has harmed another person's hand now has to have their hand cut off, or somebody who hits, harms another person's eye has to have their eye plucked out. That's not really the point of it. It's not something grotesque like that. One author puts it this way, when people refer to these laws as the law of retaliation, he says, quote, it is more appropriate to understand this as the law of equivalences, limiting the extent of retribution to the nature of the injury caused. It is not a charter for seeking unlimited revenge. The penalties imposed are to be no more than the crime merits. And that's the point, to have a fair recompense for what happened in the crime that was committed. Not to go above it, not to be excessive, not to be exacting, but to be fair. Not to be soft on crime, it's not to be hard on crime, it's to be fair on crime. That's the point of it. And you see that this is not referring to the cutting off of the hand because when this happens to a, a slave and an eye is plucked out or a, a tooth is knocked out, then the master doesn't have his eye plucked out or his tooth plucked out. It is rather that he lets him go free. He gives a fair and equitable, equitable recompense for the crime that was committed. That's the point. The final law is the one about 
an ox goring a man or a woman to death. This one's pretty understandable, isn't it? Even though we don't live in that kind of society, we can understand that if Knox went out and, uh, and killed somebody, that ox needs to be put to death. And the owner needs to be told that needs to happen. And if the owner doesn't go about doing it, and that ox gets out loose again and, and causes harm again, then it's not just that that ox needs to be put to death, but that owner is liable. It's culpable negligence. I think we understand this one. We still live in a society that has animals and pets that sometimes can do some pretty bad things and cause some damage. There's dog attacks, and then the owner tries to protect the animal. And then the dog gets out again and attacks again. People are more important than animals, and the animal needs to be put to death. And if it doesn't happen, then the owner is liable. You see the, the reasoning behind this. See how this works. Now, I know I've given you a lot. There's a lot there, a lot to think about, a lot of applications to be considered. I just want you to remember that we live in a world that needs to be governed. And I thank the Lord that we have government rather than no government. Those who think that anarchy works, I don't know how they understand even anything about the human heart. Government is essential. It's the government's role in God's world to express his anger or displeasure in the conduct of people whom it governs when they commit crimes. But the punishment for the crimes need to be equitable and fair to the crime committed, not excessive, not overly lenient, but fair in order to deter crime and constrain the effects of rampant sin. And I want you to just kind of end with this. So you think about these crimes, and you think about the, the consequences of sin, to be reminded that each one of us in our heart has rebelled, really not against just human government at time to time through our life, but ultimately against the ultimate authority and the ultimate government. We have a God whose governance that we've basically tried to throw off. And if he, if anyone in the whole universe knows what is deserved, he does. And he has described for us that the wages of sin is death. And that's why it's so important to know the counterpoint to that, the gospel of God, which is the free gift of God, is eternal life. Not something you can earn, not something you deserve. We only deserve the punishment for our crimes committed. But God in his mercy gives us a free gift of eternal life. We received by faith for those who trust in Christ. That's the good news. That there is a way out, maybe not from the earthly government, but from God's condemnation of your sin through the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Let's pray. Father, your word is holy and righteous and good. We need, again, your mind to understand it, to apply it. I pray that you give us wisdom, Lord. Thank you that you have given human governments that do constrain the influence of evil. We pray that you make our own government more righteous, fill it with leaders who know right from wrong, truth from error, who would lead in righteousness, wisdom. 
Father, we pray that you would grant that to this nation. Pray that you would help us to be judicious in our outlook of the world. Help us, Father, on a personal level, not to be exacting of wrongs against us. Help us to be merciful, kind, loving, turn on the other cheek, to not be demanding, because of humble people. Make us like our Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. Make us more like him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.